start new books of the Bible to give us the background and overall structure of the letter. There's about seven uh, more minutes of that video. I'd encourage you to watch that at home this evening or uh, with your small groups this week. Uh, the rest of it's really, really well. Um, but let me pray for us as we begin to study this letter to the Philippians together. God, we are very thankful that we have the privilege and opportunity together, together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to study this beautiful letter written to the church at Philippi. Lord, as we read it and as we study it, may we remember your great love for us and your desire for us to love one another. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I have a question for you. Have you ever received a love letter? And I'm not talking about those notes that you got back in middle school that said, do you like me? Circle yes, no, or maybe. No, I'm talking about a true love letter. Most of us have from a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse. But what about someone who you're not romantically involved with? Have you ever received a deeply affectionate letter from a friend? These are much rarer. Now, my wife does a really good job of keeping important letters that have been written to her. And she allowed me to go through her collection of letters that she keeps in a treasure box because they are just that for her. They are treasures to her. And I came across one, and I just want to share a portion of one of the letters that I found written to her from one of her Christian friends. Listen to it. Shelley. I know I tell you and text you often how much I love you and how important our friendship is. I'm putting it on paper so you can read it over and over. You and I have walked through some crazy and difficult things since we met. We have cried so many tears together and laughed a lot too. I am so thankful that we are friends. I have ladies from North Wake ask me about our friendship, why, why it is like it is. I tell them at some point... We simply decided to commit to the friendship no matter what. It's a pretty simple statement, isn't it? But it isn't always a simple thing to do. It can be extremely difficult to not just walk away when it gets really hard, right? Think of all the things over the years that you and I have walked through together. Those things that we really needed the love and support and even the reassurance that no matter what, no matter what was said or done, we were going to be there for each other. No matter how difficult, people don't do that much with each other anymore. But to know that there is someone beside our husbands who will still love us, forgive us, show us grace, understand our pain and sorrow as we deal with ourselves and others, this is huge. It is a bomb when things are at their worst. What I have discovered is that the longer you and I are friends, the more significant and precious this friendship has become to me. My love for you and our friendship continues to grow. You are my person. I love you. And I never want you to doubt it. Have you ever received a letter like this from another believer? Like I said, it's rare. But it should not be. And today we're going to get to read another one of these love letters. Again, not from two lovebirds, 
but from one follower of Christ to another group of Christ followers, a church. And as you heard in the video, this is Paul writing to a church that he started and had supported him in his missionary efforts. So listen to this love letter that he wrote to these believers. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you see why I call these first 11 verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians a love letter? It drips with affection And we will see how deep the affection pool goes as we begin to wade in its waters. So let's wade together. The first thing that we will notice is a humble greeting. A humble greeting. Back to those first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this seemingly simple greeting is anything but that. For when we slow down and begin to wade in its waters, we will find that it is packed deep with significant meaning. Paul writes this deeply affectionate letter and he includes Timothy in the introduction Timothy did not necessarily co-author this book as the rest of the letter will make clear, but Paul gladly shares the greeting with Timothy, whom the Philippians know well. This itself is an act of humility by the author as an example to the humility that he will call the church to in the rest of his letter. And not only that, but Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants or slaves in some of your translations. Again, we notice Paul's humility in how he identifies himself. You see, Paul is an apostle of God, yet he does not identify himself as such with the Philippians. Instead, he takes the lowly title of servant. And his self-designation reveals that he has completely given himself to Jesus. He belongs to him and him alone. And in contrast to his self-identification as a slave, he gives the church in Philippi the designation saints. 
They are highly esteemed as God's holy people. They are saints. And Paul addresses them all. They are all saints. This word all is going to show up five times in our passage and sets the tone for Paul's call for unity in the rest of his letter. And if that were not enough, all the yous in our passage, including the one in verse 2, are all plural. So when we read these yous, we should hear the word y'all for us from the south and the word yous guys from those from the north. Because everything that Paul has to say about and to this congregation is to be understood through the collective, unified whole. And their sainthood is not because they are worthy, as though they are holy in and of themselves. No, they are saints in Christ. It is solely through their relationship with Christ that Paul can confidently call them saints. Listen to how Peter would put it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He would say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy next we notice that Paul addresses the overseers and the deacons who are a part of and with all the saints at Philippi why why does he directly address them here because in all of his letters all 13 of them he never addresses these leaders in his greeting except for here I think this is once again Paul demonstrating humility Right out of the gate, in the introduction of his letter, he is taken the low place. Even though he's an apostle of God, he identifies himself as a servant or a slave while referring to those in Philippi as saints, as God's holy people. And now he gives honor to the leadership of the church by acknowledging their dignity with the titles of overseers and deacons. Paul is already in the salutation modeling what he will call the church to later when he writes, do nothing, absolutely nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. In considering their interest, Paul commends to them the blessings of grace. Undeserved favor from the God of all creation and peace. The recognition that the wrath that has been eliminated through Christ's gracious work. Peace at the deepest level. And all of this comes to them all, not from Paul, not from Timothy, but from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So more than a simple greeting, a cordial greeting with fake niceties, Paul packs deep theological realities to encourage this church. In Northway, this is, this is just the intro. What's coming next? Next, we'll see an affectionate prayer of thankfulness, an affectionate prayer of thankfulness. Look at verses three through eight. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. We will see in these verses that Paul's affectionate prayer of thankfulness is rooted and grounded in three realities. One, gospel partnership. Two, gospel work. And three, gospel affection. First, Paul's thankfulness to God is because the Philippian church is partners with him in the gospel. So in what ways had this congregation partnered with him in the gospel ministry? Well, this church was partnered with him in the gospel in at least two ways. One, they had financially supported him in his missionary work. Philippians 4, 14 through 16. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So they had financially supported Paul on his gospel mission. And second, they themselves would have been sharing the gospel with those around them, right? For this is what believers do. When we are saved by the gospel, we share that same gospel message, that good news with those around us. When we find the cure that aids, that ails all of humanity, we share that cure with them. And notice that their partnership in the gospel is not sporadic. It's not spotty. It didn't fizzle out because Paul is most thankful for their consistency. The consistency of their partnership, which he writes, was from the first day until now. It's obviously nice when someone helps you in a big way right out of the gate. But to have support at whatever level, in the beginning, the middle, in the end, that's gold. That's gold. For this is what families do, right? True family is with you through the thick and the thin. They're in it for the long haul. Their love and their support is unconditional. And Paul acknowledges that the Philippians have been just this for him. They have been his supportive family. The consistency of their gospel ministry partnership is the cause for Paul's thankfulness to God. And his thankfulness displays intentionality. It's not happenstance. He says that it is in all his remembrance of them. This requires the exercising of the mind, slowing and stilling one's self to recall all that another has done for you. Church, is this a regular practice for you? Slowing and stealing yourself with the purpose of recalling all the blessings and all the gospel support that you have received from others. The church, it was for Paul. And notice that this is not a duty for him. No, it's a delight. 
He tells them that his prayers for them are joy to him. No matter the situation, no matter the distance, even imprisonment would not interfere with the joy that these fellow believers brought him as he remembered their partnership with him in the gospel. And this mention of joy and its best friend rejoicing is going to show up 16 times in this letter. So Paul, once again, is giving us a glimpse, a sneak peek into another one of those major themes that he will be unpacking throughout his letter. So Northway, let's bring this home to us, to you and to me. Do you regularly and intentionally take time from your busy schedules to remember our gospel partners? What about our far-flung families? Those whom we have sent out of our church for the gospel ministry? What about our church planters? Do you see yourself as partners with them in the gospel ministry? For if we do, it will affect us and our relationship with them. We would either continue or increase or at least begin any tangible support that they may need. We would pray for them often and passionately. We would more than likely write them a letter or call them to get an update and to encourage them. And we would join with them in proclaiming the gospel as we share the good news with all of the people around us. And as this reality continues to sink in, we notice the next reality that undergirds Paul's affectionate prayer and thankfulness is the gospel work. Paul writes that he is sure. He is confident that the good work that God has started in them would be brought to completion at the day of Christ. Now where does Paul's security come from? Not from them, but he, God. Gerald Hawthorne would write it this way. The basis for such confidence is the Lord. It is confident certainty about life that does not find its locus in human abilities or achievements, but in the character and acts of God. So Paul's confidence is and our confidence has to be in God. Never self he began a good work and he will bring it to completion. Now before we move on, we got to clarify what this good work is to which Paul is referring. Because some like to limit or prioritize the financial support that the Philippians have provided Paul as the good work. And this is a part of it. But if it were totally the case, we would expect to read, He who began a good work through you will bring it to completion. But instead, it is written, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Since Paul wrote that the good work is being accomplished in them, he is primarily referring to their salvation. Listen to how Paul would say it just a little later in the letter in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. And this good work culminates or reaches its completion at the day of Jesus Christ, on the day of Christ's triumphant return, a day described as darkness and gloom and wrath 
in the Old Testament text like Joel chapter 2, the first two verses, and Amos chapter 5, verse 20. But here is now described as something to look forward to because of the good gospel work that God will complete on that great day. Church, this is, this is good news. If you are in Jesus, if you follow him, you have no reason to fear. You only have joyful anticipation. Listen to how Gordon Fee puts it. Believers in Christ are people of the future, a sure future that has already begun in the present. He says, we are citizens of heaven. North Wake, does the reality that you are citizens of heaven impact the way that you live today? As one of my friends puts it, does that day impact this day? It must be. But if you are here today and you are not confident that God has begun a good work in you, you have not placed your complete faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you will not have the same joyful anticipation that those who are in Christ share. The anticipation of Christ's return remains darkness and gloom and wrath for you. But it does not have to stay that way. Even though you have sinned against God, as every one of us has, he wants to rescue you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to make you his saint. That's why Christ came. He came on a rescue mission. He came to redeem his people. He came to live a perfect life of obedience, knowing that you would not be able to. And he died and fully and completely absorbed the wrath that were due your sins. So he took the wrath that you should have endured. And then he rose again to offer you life, eternal life. This is good news for you. But it is only good for you if you receive it. And you receive it by simply repenting and believing. Repenting by acknowledging that you have sinned against God and deeply desire to change your ways and walk in obedience with him. And believe. Believe that Jesus is your only hope for salvation. Then your darkness and your gloom and your wrath turns to light and hope and joy. Let's look at this third reality, gospel affection, that fuels Paul's thankfulness for this body of believers. For in verses 7 and 8, Paul is going to ooze with affection. And he says that it is right for him to feel this way. These feelings are held for them at the deepest parts of Paul, his heart. These deep-seated feelings flow from their constant participation in the gospel grace that Paul was spreading and is now in prison for. They were gospel grace partakers, whether Paul was in prison or free, defending and confirming the good news of Jesus. They were Paul's partnering church in the advancement of the gospel. They had assisted him through their financial support and joined him by sharing the gospel themselves. 
So for Paul, this was more than a casual relationship. They were partakers with him of grace. You see, Paul loved these brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul even calls on God to be his witness to his affections for them. And he does this because only God can truly and fully know what's in the heart of man. And for Paul, after all, this was a matter of the heart. So the apostle Paul calls on the one who is love to testify to his own love. And now we reach the pinnacle of Paul's expression of his love for them when he writes that he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. You know this. To yearn is one of the strongest words one can use to communicate the intensity of their emotions. So Paul says he yearns for them all. And his yearning is with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is an interesting and beautiful phrase that is literally from the bowels or the entrails of Christ Jesus. He's saying it's from the deepest part of him. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the nobler of the, um, of the organs that are the seat of his emotions that his affection comes from. That's why he calls it the affection of Christ Jesus. One commentator wrote that Paul held them in the heart of Christ Jesus. What a deep love Paul had for this church. And his love for them prompts him to pray for their love for one another. Listen to Paul's God-glorifying prayer of petition in verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what is the content of Paul's prayer for them? What rose to the top of the list for those whom he had such deep affection it was for their own affection for one another. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more. That it would be limitless. That it would be extremely rich. That it would be love in the most comprehensive sense. As Gerald Hawthorne put it, that they may be so rich in love that they have no room to store it. So how do you feel about the church? How do you feel about North Wake? Do you yearn for her? Is your love so rich for her that there is no room for you to store it? Do you love each and every one of the individuals that make North Wake up in the heart of Jesus? Do you love one another the way that your Savior loves you. For Jesus would say it this way in John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. North Wake, may we yearn for one another with the affection of Christ Jesus. And notice that this abounding love that Paul prays for for them is to be directed by truth. It's not a wild love. No, it's tamed by knowledge and understanding. Listen to what E.F. Scott writes concerning this. He writes, Nothing perhaps is more harmful than the easy good nature which is willing to tolerate everything. And this is often mistaken for the Christian frame of mind. Listen to what he says next. Love must fasten itself on the things which are worth loving. And it cannot do so unless it is wisely directed. So it's not loving for us to allow a brother or sister in Christ to walk in sin and us not do everything in our power to rescue them. So our rich love for one another is tamed or guided by our knowledge and discernment of what pleases God and truly is best for those who follow him. Paul would write it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So Paul has in mind an ever-increasing discerning love that lives them to live lives that match their high calling of saints in verse one. He wants them to be able to approve what is excellent And he hopes that their discerning love will help them assess and pursue the things in life that truly matter. That they would never settle for good when great is available to them. And hopefully you know what I mean when I say settling for good when great is available. A quick example would be it is good for me to exercise daily, to care for my health. But if I only have 30 minutes to spare in a given day and I exercise to the exclusion of spending time with God, enjoying his fellowship, enjoying his company and communion through the reading of his word and prayer, I have settled for good when great is available to me. See, Paul is moving this church from simply asking the question, what can followers of Christ do? to what would please God the most in any given situation because he wants them and he wants us to pursue the more excellent way, a pursuit that will lead them and us towards purity and blamelessness. Hawthorne comments that to be pure conjures up the image of someone bringing something like a garment into the sunlight so as to clearly see if it's unsoiled, if it's free from stains, if it's spotless. And then he says, blameless, pictures a person who carefully avoids putting anything in another's way that would cause that person to trip 
and fall. Now, my son and his family moved back in with us two months ago. They are transitioning from the Air Force to the mission field with the IMB. And our granddaughter, Marjorie, was 13 months at the time and had just started walking. So what do Shelly and I do? We clear everything from our house that would be a stumbling block for her, that she would trip over. We move all the dangerous stuff that she could get to. We did everything we could. And we didn't just do that in the beginning, right? You as parents or grandparents know you're constantly moving stuff. So we move these things. We clear the floors. We do it because we want Marjorie to be safe. We want good for her. We love her. It is a joy for Shelly and I to do this. In church, we're called to do this for one another as well. To do everything that we can out of joy and love so that we do not cause another one of our brothers or sisters to stumble, to fall into danger. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul would say it this way. Take care that this right or this privilege of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So we protect one another. We look out for one another. We move anything that would cause someone else to stumble or fall. And Paul's petition to the church's purity and blamelessness has a particular day in mind, the day of Christ. That day when in verse 6, a believer's good works are brought to completion. That beautiful and grand day that we all Look forward to that day that motivates us. And then lastly, Paul brings the imagery of an orchard into the conversation. Again, Hawthorne writes, The Philippians are now graphically pictured as trees loaded down with, bearing a full crop of good fruit ready to be harvested. This good fruit is called the fruit of righteousness, which Paul pulls from Old Testament texts like Amos chapter 6, verse 12, and Proverbs 3, 9, and 11:30, which all refer to righteous behavior. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew chapter 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Some translations say bear fruit worthy of repentance. And we notice that this righteousness does not come from self as though we could bear such fruit on our own. The text doesn't even call us to bear this fruit. Instead, it calls us to be filled with it. And this filling comes through Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is only when we become nothing and allow Christ to become everything that we bear the fruit of righteousness. The only righteousness that counts is that which we receive from and through Christ Therefore, Paul is not encouraging religiosity, law-keeping, as though we could keep all of the law anyway, or self-righteousness. No, it is the righteousness that comes to us through Jesus Christ by faith in him and him alone. In church, 
what's the result? What does this humble greeting and this affectionate thanksgiving and this prayer lead to? What's its end? The glory and praise of God. Paul knows that this is the mission of the church and the ultimate goal of all of humanity. The Westminster Shorter Catechism captures this when they say, uh, they ask the question, their very first question of what is the chief end of man? And they resoundingly say, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. North Wake, is this your chief end? Is this the ultimate goal that drives everything that you think, do, say, and feel? Is it glorifying God? Is this your primary purpose at your work? Is this your goal at home? Is this your primary goal in your neighborhood? Does it direct your time, your finances, your resources, your hobbies, your everything? It should. We started today with the question, have you ever received a love letter? Because we know how beautiful and meaningful it is when we do. It becomes precious to us. Like my wife, we put it in a box because it's a treasure to us. Well, I hope that today's reading of Paul's power-packed love letter to this beloved church at Philippi would inspire you. It would challenge you, for God preserved it for us to read and as a result, love the church the way that Paul loved the church because we have and are being transformed by the gospel. We should write our own love letters to her in the ink of our affections and actions. We should humble ourselves towards one another, truly considering every person is more important than us. We should have and express our deep affection and offer regular thanksgiving for and to one another. We should pray for one another that our love would be limitless and discerning, leading to purity and blamelessness as we allow ourselves to be filled with the righteousness of Christ, knowing that it will all culminate in the praise and glory of our great God. So churches, you think about how to respond to a passage like this, to a love letter like this. I want to give you four ideas, and maybe you pick one of those. These are all great, I think. These are all great. But pick one. We can't change four things at one time. Pick one of these, but pick the one that would be the most significant act of worship for you. Okay? So I'm going to give you four. But before I give you these four, if earlier when I talked about the fact that some of you have not started that good work. Christ has not started that good work in you. That you have not completely placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. Then you only have one response today. And that is to repent and believe and allow Christ to move you from sinner to saint. But church, here are four options. Here's the first. If there is anyone in the church that you do not love this way, the way that Paul talked about today, maybe someone you have bitterness or resentment or anger towards, then you should go to them and pursue a reconciling conversation. Second, 
You can begin a regular rhythm of praying for our church, for our members, for our far-flung families, and for our church planters. Pray that the gospel message advances through them and through us. Pray that their love for one another would be so rich that there is no room to store it. Pray for one another's desire to please God in everything that we think, do, say, and feel. Third, write another believer a deeply affectionate letter, email, or text to share how much they mean to you and give thanks for them. And then fourthly, fix your eyes on the day of Jesus Christ. Look forward to it with great anticipation and allow that day to impact this day and everyone that follows, knowing that all of this will lead to the glory and praise of our great God.